Heavy Networking by the Packet Pushers is sponsored today by IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers for over 65 hours of IT training for free. That's itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Packet Pusher sponsor Cumulus Networks asks, if you're future-proofing your network, why go with old legacy infrastructure? Cumulus offers networking software for the open, modern data center, giving you the option to choose the new way every time. Find out more at cumulusnetworks.com slash modernize. Today's heavy networking web application firewalls, uh, which in the traditional sense are neither web applications nor firewalls. So then what are these strange creatures? If my company doesn't have one, should I go to the pet store and get one? Will they bite me if I'm not careful? What does a web application firewall eat? Helping us understand how to feed and care for our very own web application firewall is Scott Hogue, who you might know from the IPv6 Buzz podcast, part of the Packet Pushers podcast network. Scott, welcome to the show. And in a sentence or two, hey, man, tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, Yeah, I'm a longtime CCIE, CISSP, doing all kinds of things, networking and security, now making a transition to software-defined and cloud. IPv6 is my secret superpower. I authored a book on IPv6 security a number of years ago, and I work for Hexabuild. Lovely. It is a pleasure to have you on the heavy networking side of the Packet Pushers podcast network, because, right, uh, of course, you're all over the IPv6 Buzz podcast, but now we get you over here on heavy networking, where instead of being a host, you're the victim. I mean, the, the guest, the subject matter <laughs> expert. Yeah, that's what you are. That's what you are. Well, well, yeah. Scott, let's jump into the conversation here. A, a web application firewall. Please describe this thing. What is this beast? Ah, okay. Yeah, a quick uh, note about pronunciation. It's WAF. Wow. Uh, it's an acronym, not an initialization, initialism. So we pronounce it like a word, like, for example, NASA. So it's a WAF, not a WAF, and definitely not a WOOF. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there. Pro tip. Pro tip right there. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard people call it a WOOF? I wouldn't have thought anybody. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you, you tell me, Greg. <laughs> Yeah, how's it pronounced in Europe? Yeah, you say ruder, buddy. You got to, you got things to Waff. answer for. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, usually when it comes to WAF, people just say, "I turn it off." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. we don't know what it does. We'll just turn it off. I think. Yeah. Yeah, not needed. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, WAFs are security, you know, special security devices that protect web applications. They do signature-based protection and anomaly, anomaly detection. Uh, match rules, get threat intel feeds of bad IP addresses, do DOS protections, things like that. Now, uh, let me uh, expand on something I thought was a function. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. You know, back in the day, uh, I was a WAF operator. I was given the dubious privilege of uh, installing a WAF in front of a uh, particularly important web application that we had at our company. And I remember having to deal with all of these uh, rules that would do layer seven inspections for particular pages and fields on this particular web uh, application where, you know, if you were entering data into this field, you could put sanitization rules in there to make sure the input was within some regex or some such. Does it do things like that too? It does that function, but... God, you would not want to have to enter in all those rules yourself. Most people lack the experience to know how 
URIs, URLs could be malformed and then anticipate the attacker behavior and then create signatures that using regular expressions or, or what have you to put into the WAF manually. Most organizations just trust the vendor is giving them a set of rules or policies or updates or a thread intel feed with all the bad bad guys on it, you know, so... Most of the time, it's yeah. What that is exposing, Scott, is just how long it's been since I myself have deployed a WAF because this goes back <laughs> a, a long enough that it was a fairly manual process where I, mm-hmm. as the ops person, was expected to work with the web application developer and mm-hmm. write this arduous set of rules to deal with anything that could possibly be coming inbound uh, to the website mm-hmm. and. Uh, exploit a vulnerability was fairly heinous and unsustainable. So I'm glad to hear you describe it as a more automated process now where the, uh, you can trust the vendor to help you get those policies written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Scott, um, what is the unique problem a WAF is solving? Why do I need this thing? What are the use cases they're going to drive into install a WAF? So a WAF kind of acts like a guard dog for your vulnerable web applications. It doesn't just sniff malicious packets and then nip at the bad guys. It behaves more like a proxy. So think of it like a dog that goes out to the curb, retrieves the newspaper, and takes the newspaper back out to the recycle bin. Uh, and the dog knows the difference between a bone and a pipe bomb. So it's acting as a, as a proxy. And so it's terminating the connection from the client and then making a back-end connection to the website. And as it does so, it can inspect, you know, the URI, it can look at the, at the web traffic that's going back in that connection. And um, in the inbound and the outbound direction, it's often inline, so it's a choke point. Um, and it's in the middle of the TLS connection, which is really important. Um, it can sanitize the input and say, oh, I don't allow this type of injection of certain bad things, like cross-site scripting or JavaScript or SQL in the URI. It also looks at traffic in the outbound direction as well. So there's a, there's a lot there. Um, I think the big thing I heard there from an architectural standpoint, it is a proxy. It is sitting in mm-hmm. the middle of that data stream and needs to be a proxy, I, I assume, because of uh, encryption, mm-hmm. if for no other reason. Yeah, more and more websites using TLS. And if if you're just you know, kind of a bystander watching the TLS go by, you're not going to understand anything inside of the URI. You're not going to see anything of usefulness. And when a key thing... But haven't we seen threat intelligence feeds adding to this? So the arrival of threat intelligence feeds as uh, smart rules to add something to it. So they know that this domain name is a bad domain name and that changes Mm -hmm. the way we act. Some can do anomaly detection, uh, watching for connections. And, oh, I see so many connections from this one IP address out on the internet. And because I've seen so many failed connections from this, I see. I think it's an active attack. So I'm going to block them or ban them or put them in a penalty box. Mm-hmm. Or, or based on what current attacks look like today, I may use some AI ML algorithms in the cloud to then push some protections automatically to sites to kind of Mm. virtually patch them in a way or yeah so they're definitely evolving Mm. i think that's a major transition from you know where we used to be with wafs was this static 
firewall-like rule base to a much more dynamic, you know, uh, things are automatically being configured by a software platform in the back. Maybe we'll touch more on that in the discussion. Yeah, kind of the old old style of the core rule set, as they call it, the OWASP mm. core rule set was fairly static. Uh, so if you keep your core rule set updated, you will get some updates. But if you go with a commercial vendor, you might get even more rapid updates with more dynamic response. You said AI and ML could be part of it, depending on what WAF mm-hmm. solution you've deployed. Does that mean mm-hmm. I get some zero-day protections? Yeah, they could be, you know, if you're getting it, maybe let's say through a CDN, the CDN is providing the WAF function because it's in the middle between the clients on the internet and your web application. Maybe they are seeing a broader range of attacks than just you do from your own little knothole view of the internet. So they're able to gather and correlate attacks across a broader uh, set of sites. Hmm. Back in the hmm. day when I was working on a WAF, the reason we deployed this thing to begin with was uh, PCI compliance. Uh, we were in an environment mm-hmm. that required that, and WAF was part of the, well, very long list of things that we needed to become PCI compliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is yep. that still true, where WAFs are installed for compliance reasons? Yeah, there's many reasons or many ways to meet PCI DSS 6.6 to requirement to kind of protect your web applications. You could do static code assessment. You could do dynamic code assessment. You could do self-assessment, vulnerability scanning, but a WAF is part of that and often used in combination with those other techniques to create a set of compensating controls that if one fails, maybe you catch it in another place. And the web tier is, you know, the most exposed directly to the internet and it's, it's where the attackers are going to pummel you all day long. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, if you have a weakness in one area, maybe it gets picked up by another protection mechanism. So defense in depth hmm. and diversity of defense are the ideas there. You were mentioning uh, many of the different protections that you get with a WAF, which sounded honestly very similar to what I might get with a, a UTM or, or a next-gen firewall. Can you draw the line of distinction? How is a WAF different from uh, a next-gen firewall? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, firewalls just, they lack the ability of looking deeper inside the protocol. They're really just saying this IP address to this IP address, 80 or 443, you know, and it's allowed or blocked. Um, next-gen firewalls can look at the HTTP and say, okay, it's, it's port 80, so let me make sure this looks like HTML and not some other protocol embedded in port 80 data exfiltration, covert channel, or something like that. But firewalls typically lack the understanding of the malform URLs that could affect a web application. And mm. now, if the firewall is permitting any to my website, 443, they're only going to see the encrypted traffic. So, so you're yeah. implying that a WAF is a proxy, so mm-hmm. that you can actually decrypt and then inspect the payload looking for behavior. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if it's a UTM firewall doing an intrusion prevention function, it's not going to look any deeper in the packets either. And it doesn't understand the application logic, but a WAF will intercept the data plane and the control plane traffic. So it'll look at the get, the post, the head, those types of messages and do sanity validation. It'll mm. see the full URI and the path, and then it will also be able to use its CPO, CPU to encode-decode that and see what's really taking place. 
It can then. So you're talking about encoding and decoding the actual payload itself, because the payload in a HTTP will be encoded according to various formats. Uh, the message, the, the control plane message that's sent could be encoded in different ways as a way to bypass certain kinds of WAF functions. And so that encoding, decoding can reveal that there's an attack that's been encoded in a certain part of the mm -hmm. URL. Right. Um, yeah, and then the WAF can do all the other things that it has based on all the other matching it's trying to do for bad behavior. And it can do, it, it, it sees the outbound connection. So it can do some data leak prevention, data loss prevention. It can say, oh, look at what just went out. It went, a whole bunch of PII data just left. Our so it strikes me that if you're, if you're thinking back to where we were with intrusion detection systems, mm -hmm. a lot of what of the features of an intrusion detection, which was the scanning, looking for patterns, heuristics, matching, and that type of stuff, is now just a subset of what's in a WAF. Is that reasonable or is mm -hmm. that unfair? Yeah, yeah, it does a lot of those same functions because it can, you know, to see it from the endpoint perspective, that's where you would see it unencrypted. The data in transit is unencrypted at the endpoints. In the middle, if you're just Eve, the eavesdropper, you just see the encrypted data. So so your ability to uh, look at what's really going on at the application layer is limited or invisible. Mm. Uh, but if you're in the middle of the connection, uh, in the middle of that TLS connection uh, between the client and the web server, you're able to observe all of that. Yeah, so you're getting true layer seven right down to the payload mm -hmm. with a WAF. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. again, with IPS, sure, some of the functions are similar, but because of the pervasive nature of, uh, of encryption uh, in HTTP these days, it's not really doing you a lot of good with IPS. Yet there's certain kind of uh, things that you could prevent with IPS, just looking at an encrypted session, but mm -hmm. not too much. For that mm -hmm. deep down inspection of the payload, what is being handed to the web server? You need to have that decryption capability that that WAF as a proxy gives you. Yeah, and if you were just someone or a middle box in the middle between a web server using its cert and a client and a, using a secure web browser, you would affect the, the certificate that's presented to the client. But if you are the WAF acting as a proxy and terminating the TLS connection, the certificate you provide the client will be authentic from the client's browser perspective. So you aren't doing SSL in the middle, you know, like some mm -hmm. firewalls used to do many years ago or next-gen firewalls used to purport to be able to do. You're, you you're still need serving to insert a certificate into the mm -hmm. browser's certificate yeah. store, whether that's in the operating system or the browser itself. Exactly. Trust the interception mm -hmm. and trust the certificate that's in your proxy and, say, mm -hmm. and then it won't thrag an alert saying someone's yes. trying to hack your, your encryption session. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. So if with the WAF being able to see all of that traffic, all of that payload, then uh, just popping into my head something that would have been that was very important to us in that PCI environment, data leak prevention. And we had certain tools that mm -hmm. helped us with that, mostly mm -hmm. focused on email though. But it as I'm thinking this through, WAFs would be great for data leak prevention for people trying to uh, exfiltrate data out of that web server. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those functions have kind of come together. You know, initially it was a load balancer and then it became an application delivery controller. We consolidated other functions into it, like cookies and 
uh, DOS protection and some firewalling. And then WAFs got integrated with load balancers. And so we collapsed a lot of features together. Uh, and yeah, that DLP function kind of naturally fits there in line. Oh, that's actually a good question then. Is a WAF, typically I'm buying a WAF as what then? A license add-on to my ADC? Or is it a separate device? Mm -hmm. Yeah, traditionally it was a physical appliance and you added a a WAF license to your ADC um, and enable those functions and and turn those on for certain web apps and built those policies and applied them. But now they can be very standalone and not and be separated from the load balancing function and because they're very specific on what they do well the adc model was handy because typically your adc was in the middle of that web application Mm -hmm. flow anyway it was sitting there with the virtual ip so sure Mm -hmm. let's add the web application firewall functionality right there (laughs) because why not and hey we get to charge you a lot of money for that license key yeah certain vendors you saw vendor consolidation (laughs) you saw companies that made adcs or you know, acquire WAF mm-hmm. software companies. And then you've also now seen CDNs buying WAF type companies and integrating that software into their, you know, what they offer. Well, do do I actually want to make my WAF? Do I want to, architecturally, do I want my WAF to be on-premises or do I want it to be in the clouds? It sounds like I've got either option, but I'm always concerned about latency if I'm kind of mm-hmm. service chaining something like this mm-hmm. off to the cloud for inspection before it ever makes it inbound. Yeah, you would want it to be close. Or if you put the WAF in the cloud, then it would probably be using some type of anycast methodology to make it more accessible or or faster or add less latency, you know, if it's in the path. Um, mm-hmm. So anycast is in, I'm going to announce the uh, IP the same IP from multiple geographic locations, and in theory, whichever one is closest to me, fastest to me, is the one I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to handle my geographic latency concerns in that way, uh, mm-hmm. and then get good, good and consistent processing. Is that pretty commonly done? Yeah, you'd have like www.example.com, you know, uh, resolve to an A or a quad A record, and that would be served up by some cloud service in many locations or in a location closer to the source website. Now, uh, the WAF function then, as I'm thinking this through, if I'm, let's start at the client. I'm the client, I'm making a web request. That's Mm -hmm. the first thing I'm actually going to hit. Well, I'll probably, maybe I'll go Mm -hmm. through a firewall or something, but um, then I'm Mm going to hit the web application firewall, the WAF, uh, Mm -hmm. which is then going to do inspections and then proxy the connection through. Is that uh, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that WAF is going to terminate the TLS connection, and you're going to send your GET on Slash or or what have you uh, through that, and then it's going to say, "Oh, okay, let me inspect that GET statement and see if that's valid." <laughs> okay, so I know where it is. I know who I'm talking to. That makes sense. It's very similar to the load balancer model, anyway. If people are familiar mm-hmm. with that, mm-hmm. so then the next thought is high availability. Can a WAF become a SPOF? And if so, how do I deal with that? It could definitely be a SPOF if it was a traditional appliance-based approach and there was only one of them and it was in line, serially in line. That could impact your mean time between failures. If it goes down or your website goes down, either one, your site is down. So you have multiple yeah, points of failure. But they could be made HA. They could be, you know, 
uh, you could have HA pair or set and they can share state and be active passive or active active. But if they're a cloud or you've implemented it as a software function that's scalable, that kind of does auto scaling, then it could be made more redundant. And it's really a service that you're launching. So you're alluding to some of the more modern products like AppNetta, mm-hmm. who's been a sponsor. So disclosure, mm-hmm. they've been a sponsor on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have a software, purely software architecture. You don't get a hardware platform unless you put it into a VM. Um, mm-hmm. and you direct traffic to it, and then if it needs more, it just spawns more instances of itself. Yeah. If you, start, you don't have to say, I'm buying a box. This particular piece of hardware is rated for you know, 25 gigabits per second of traffic and X amount of SSL terminations, et cetera, et cetera. You just go and buy um, licenses for as much as you want, and then if it bursts, it just keeps scaling VMs horizontally until mm-hmm. it gets the capacity that you need. Now, does that work in real life? Mm-hmm. It always seems to be. You know, yeah. You come from the point of view of like where I've come from, where most load balancers from the traditional brands never actually worked the way they said they did. They just sort of futzed around and, and gave up at fifty percent of rated maximum, and then blew up randomly just to spite you because you know the vendors hate you, sort of thing. Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, the WAF could be a spoff if it if you had to guess at what your maximum capacity may be like. So here you've got a website, a retail site, and you're going into you know the holiday season, uh, and you're expecting a certain amount of purchases. Mm-hmm. You get an excess, you know, uh, interest from customers. You underestimate. And now there's a serious problem for your business. Um, you couldn't absorb we used the to turn off one. the complex rules on those days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so you're. <laughs> That's guessing. what we did. We used to. I did it on a couple of big, uh, big sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're guessing that. it. Guessing at what the peak may be. If yeah, if you're operating in the cloud or buying a a, a WAF service. You yeah. don't need to know how much you'll have or what peak will be. They can help you absorb. Yeah, they, well, you do need to know some things. Like um, there are still limitations in the cloud, like 100 gig, uh, AWS and Google have just announced 100 gig instances. If you're running the WAF, depending on the WAF that you're operating, you may run out of network capacity into the instance. So if you've got an instance that runs mm-hmm. 10 gig, so you've got an old, older type of instance that you've created to run the WAF in. Let's say you're buying a third-party WAF. You're not using the one that Google or AWS or Azure provide you. Mm-hmm. You can still run out of network capacity if the VM instance that you've reserved or bought doesn't have the high-speed networking capacity. So there is still the capacity to do that in yes. the cloud if you're not careful. So let's not yeah. So if you're <laughs> let's not pretend doing... the cloud is infinitely clever because it's not. But if you're using the, the you know the services that Google has for for firewall, I'm trying to think of the name of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are infinitely scalable again, but they also have limitations with things like flows and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and then your backend still needs to scale. So I mean, your backend being the web servers, they could be servers, they could be containers. You know, it it varies, uh, but that needs to be scalable resource as well too. Hmm. You know, just having the WAF be scalable doesn't automatically give you uh, infinite scaling of your uh, website, but a CDN would give you more scalability of your site. Mm-hmm. We pause our podcast discussion for a word from IT Pro TV. They are flexible online technical training and are offering a free membership so you can try them out and expand your IT career. Try IT Pro TV out and access 65 plus hours of IT training, including Microsoft and CompTIA courses at no cost and no credit card required. Training helps you take advantage of the career paths available in IT. 
A recent MIT study shows that IT occupations have grown by nearly 20% between 2004 and 2017, and that's more than eight times the growth rate of other career paths. Earnings are growing for folks in IT as well, even though earnings are flat for college grads on the average. IT Pro TV can help you take advantage of these trends with courses covering CompTIA, Cisco, EC Council, VMware, and more. There are over 4,000 hours of binge-worthy, on-demand training presented by engaging hosts that use a talk show-like format. And they are live every day. Content goes studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. You can find exactly what you're looking for easily. You can also stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand worldwide via Chromecast and Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, on your PC or your phone. No matter where you're at, you can learn your stuff, you can pass your exams, you can earn your certs, and then land your next great job with the help of IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers for over 65 hours of IT training for free. That is itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. One more time, itpro.tv slash packet hyphen pushers. We thank them for sponsoring the podcast. And now, back to the show. How does the WAF help me in a DDoS scenario? Or, or, or does it? Um, it would look for, you know, the, the malformed connections. And then if it sees so many connections from a certain IP address, it could then put them in the penalty block box or block them. But when it's massive scale DDoS protections, you still need to use, you know, DDoS protections to try and identify that traffic and block it closer to the source based on the signature of what that type of traffic is. Yeah, because if you expect the WAF to do it, eventually the WAF's just going to be overwhelmed. It just it, mm-hmm. it is what it is. It's going to be overcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, right, you're going to need that DDoS service, as you said, mm-hmm. upstream uh, from you to yeah. to to yeah. sanitize your traffic before it's actually getting to your WAF. Yeah. I think yeah. there's. I think you need to spell out the difference between a DDoS and a DOS. I think mm-hmm. a DDoS is um, a distributed denial of service mm-hmm. it's sort of attack which can overwhelm your infrastructure regardless of who's, who it is. Although if you're using a public cloud, your scale-up, you know, 100 gigs of traffic is possible provided you've got the auto-scaling mm-hmm. in your platform. But it makes more sense to flip that out to a DDoS service who can then filter it in the internet, you know, at the in the network. Mm-hmm. Typically and for a reassuringly expensive price, but yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah they'll, they'll gladly take that traffic off your hands. Yeah. But um, there's still denial of service where um, you can't generate 100 gigabits per second of a certain tack. Mm-hmm. And the WAF is still useful for denial of service attacks, yeah. just not distributed denial of service attacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So just like we had functionality consolidating in the load balancer and the ADC, now you see this WAF functionality consolidating into the CDN because the CDN can do, uh, you know, HTTPS, they can do the DDoS mitigation, they can do the caching, the CDN function. So it's another logical place to put that functionality. Mm. I think, I think just think it's important to separate the two Mm -hmm. because you can, you can mix them up if you're mm-hmm. not careful to understand. You still need denial of service. So if somebody attempts to exact attack your web servers and exhaust the resources on your web servers, you've got two choices. One is to rate limit how many requests pass through to your web servers, and the other one is to increase the number of web servers available, for example. Or mm-hmm. and, a, and a really good denial of service will actually do something that taxes your database backend as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. So really good or really can, bad. <laughs> Depends on which side of the file you're on, right? (laughs) 
Are you on the defending side or the attacking side? It uh, depends on your business model. Okay. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say, it depends on who's paying you. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Boom. Yep. <laughs> so, Scott, I want to talk about cloud-native architectures. Cloud-native, um, in this context, let's define that as an application that lives in a cloud architecture. Maybe it's you know dealing with microservices, um, but we've got elastic uh, scaling that we can bring to bear. There's probably some kind of a uh, proxy server sitting in front of services on the back end. Uh, it's more that feeling uh, of a service rather than the traditional uh, multi-tiered architectures. How does a WAF factor into that world? Yeah, definitely in the cloud, it's the ultimate lights out data center. You don't really know what's going on there. And so you end up stitching these functions together virtually and you're only a couple of clicks away from fully exposing your site to the internet. So you have to be very careful. Uh, so you need those compensating controls in the web tier to say, I'm doing these types of things. I have a stateful filtering. I have web application filtering. I'm doing these proxies. I'm terminating my TLS. You know, Yeah, the web server isn't just in a rack somewhere in your colo or in your data center, now that web server is moved into the cloud. It's probably moved into a container-based model. And, and so, and you may have multiple levels of web tiers. You could have a proxy functioning in the, in the container architecture, and then you have a WAF out in front of it. So it can be multiple layers of these proxies all stuck together doing different functionality. You know, so they can be a couple of different levels deep, but then the, you know, the containers are running on some private address subnets without direct internet connectivity, and they only get connections from the WAF. So it gives an extra layer of indirection and abstraction for those web services. So that's kind of part of the benefit, I guess, of using them in those in those uh, cloud architectures. Well, there is some complexity to those architectures as well. I know one of the services that we're looking for in those cloud native architectures is the ability to find or follow a transaction through its entire path as that transaction is built. Do you happen mm -hmm. to know if there's some cloud native WAFs that are sensitive to this need and can you know inject their uh, logging along with the you know system wide logging and track? give you the ability to do that distributed tracking? Yeah, logging is really key because that's the only visibility you have to what's happening. Uh, so logging, and you can do logging at cloud scale. Um, so you can turn on all the logs and log all the things. Uh, but typically, you know, you're using a, a WAF that's a particular version or function or from a vendor, but it may not integrate with your backend. So you have to then send that to log analysis platform. Um, you may be logging for other functions, like you may be logging on the WAF and then you may be logging on the back end because maybe you're looking for certain fraudulent behavior or, oh, I see these connections from these IP addresses, but then I see a, a bad credit card used. So I want to know those and I want to correlate those. And so I'm trying to track down fraudulent behavior for a retail site I'm trying to look for malicious behavior. And so I'm going to take those two log streams from the front end, from the WAF's perspective and from the app tier and stitch them together somehow and try and glean out some 
something where then I can feed that back into the protection mechanisms uh, to say, well, block these things, block these bad people. So the, the correlation you're describing then is probably going to happen. Uh, you were mentioning mm -hmm. a third-party logging tool, maybe mm -hmm. like, uh, would that be like a Splunk? I just dump all my log entries there and then have Splunk do the processing and uh, maybe take an action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or it could be something special that the applications teams wrote for their own requirements, like fraud detection or something like that. Mm. Okay. Complicated. Uh, and anytime mm -hmm. I start diving into the cloud native architectures, especially when these apps were broken up into microservices, it's just a bear. Now let's throw WAFs mm -hmm. into the mix. Woohoo! Why yeah. is the traffic dropping? I, I don't. I don't know. I need to go home now. This sad. is where uh, this is where service meshes come in. I think Ethan, yeah. 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 that ability to put a service mesh and control mm -hmm. the traffic flow from into the not well not into the WAF because the WAF faces towards the public network, but uh, uh, I've seen the Google architectures where they run an Istio out the back of the WAF as a sidecar proxy, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, run it from there into the containers, and then the Istio network then does internal load balancing. So a yeah. service mesh yeah. made up of of WAFs, you're saying with Istio? Um. Um, well, I guess if you're doing cloud native architecture, you would use the WAF functionality that's built into the cloud platform you're on. So you know, Google Cloud Protection is their WAF product. That Google Load Balancing is their load balancing product. But behind that, they use Istio service mesh. So as the traffic comes out of the WAF. It would be potentially unencrypted or maybe encrypted, and it would go into an Istio container. Maybe it'd be a, a traffic proxy or one of the others, um, and then it would be decrypted and then re-encrypted so that and decide where the Istio service mesh would go. And so, if you've got say five web server containers behind that, there would be five Istio proxies adjacent to it. If that makes sense, and the key management is done in the Istios, and the encryption is done in the Istio, not in the actual web server containers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's exactly where I think this is headed is, you know, software defined perimeter, it's watching for the IP address of the client or, or there's some advanced authentication or it's ID as a service or federated identity. And mm -hmm. then that unlocks the ability for the client to get into the web tier. Yeah. And then there's a service mesh taking place inside mm -hmm. the cloud architecture. Yeah. So I think it's stitching together a mm -hmm. few of these things, these ideas together. And, and mm -hmm. these then architectures could be deployed up in the cloud or internal in your data center because it's you're now treating your end users as less than trusted and you're doing zero trust networking. So a mm. bunch of concepts coming together here, I think, in the near future. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. folks, if you didn't catch on, Greg's just back from the Google Next conference where he had <laughs> many, many presentations he was uh, he was able well, to attend. I've been diving into Istio, well, into service meshes generally for some time to try and make sense of them. And in a in a in one way, seeing as we've touched on this, it looks a lot like the NSX agent in the vSwitch. So right next to the VM was this NSX agent that was doing the virtual pathing. Well, if you take that NSX agent and turn it into a full-on proxy that does TLS um, termination and TLS encryption, and you send all the traffic into that. Now, if you take that function, instead of it being in the network driver stack of the VM and just turn it into a container itself, then you've got service meshing. Yeah, uh, yeah, Istio paired with uh, Envoy, uh, typical. Um, yeah, uh, Envoy is there, the right. Proxy. Yeah, Envoy is yeah, the proxy. Can, Istio is the control plane. Yeah, Istio is yeah. Envoy is the most common, but there are others. Traffic yes, and yeah, there's several different. Because in open source world, it wouldn't hurt to have, you couldn't just have one. 
You have no, to no, have you got to have several. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I didn't code this. Some, uh, let's get on this. Let's make our own. Well, what's wrong with this I, one? Yeah. I didn't make it. That's what's wrong with it. Come on. <laughs> it is a little confusing. There are ones that do it better, but the 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 idea behind that is not dissimilar to that NSX vSwitch idea called concept that we implemented, but you take that vSwitch function and you move it into a container and then you say, I force in the configuration engine, so in my Kubernetes or in my Docker controller, that every web container, every database container, every middleware container, all of those you know um, containers that have the actual middleware in them or the, the application in them, they're partnered with a proxy and that proxy is the Istio controller, which then sends all the traffic around. And it load balances the request between the web server and the database mm-hmm. or the web server and the and the middleware or the web server and the supporting for whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. We're putting the podcast on pause for a moment to talk about sponsor Cumulus Networks. Cumulus is offering open networking software built on Cumulus Linux. And with it, you can create an affordable network that you can operate like the world's largest data centers do. I don't want to operate like the world's largest data centers. They have their own problems. I have mine. Ah, but there are some things you can take away here. Cumulus Linux is automation friendly, and automation is something everyone can use. And maybe you've been trying to automate your legacy gear. Well, there's a good chance that what you've been trying to automate is not so automation friendly. So that should make Cumulus Linux mighty interesting to you. But Cumulus Networks has a bigger story to tell than just operational efficiency. Their NetQ management tool offers analytics and telemetry so that you can see what's happening across your network infrastructure and reduce mean time to resolution, mean time to innocence if you like, when you're troubleshooting problems. And a big takeaway idea here, build a future-proof network. And if networking's future is an automated one, then Cumulus has a plausible future-proof story to tell that legacy vendors might have a harder time telling. If you want to get your head around all of this with specific testing for your network environment that you'd like to automate, you can do that with Cumulus VX, a free virtual appliance that enables you to preview and test Cumulus open networking technology at zero cost. Find out more about all of this at cumulusnetworks.com modernize. One more time, that's cumulusnetworks.com modernize. And our thanks to Cumulus for sponsoring the Packet Pushers today. And now back to the episode. Well, Scott, let's turn this conversation uh, from architecture to operations. We've talked a lot about design, where WAFs fit into mm-hmm. the network, and uh, what they do. To, so I want to, from an operator perspective, ask some questions. And l- let's start at the very beginning here. I'm an operator, let's say, and I've been asked to install a WAF. Mm. Talk me through the life cycle of a WAF <laughs> deployment. How should I introduce it? How do I build the policy? When's it okay to have it actually start enforcing policy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you start, you know, kind of assessing your requirements. What should I buy? Do I need an ADC, virtual, cloud, CDN? What's my deployment model? And then go out and survey vendors and down select. You'll buy a product. You'll configure an IP address on it, do some routing. If it's in the in the inline, you know, traditional method, you know, you'd load your policy, load the regedge rules, regedge expression, signatures, thread intel feed, get all that going, patch it. Or if it's a cloud service, you just, you know, swipe a credit card or, or whatever, <laughs> arrange payment terms or a PO number. Um, Put your coins can... in the slot. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Each extra coin gets you another threat intelligence. Is that what it does? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, every Bitcoin you put in there, it goes somewhere. <laughs> into the... Oh, no blockchain jokes. I can't stand it. <laughs> 
Yeah, you start to to configure it and you probably t- set up a test site or you do it on your dev environment first or set up a test site. Turn down the TTL, you know, change your A record, your quad A record to your new site, you know, set it maybe to 10 minutes in case you got to back out quickly if there's a problem. You'll change your DNS to point to that WAF service. You'll also probably have to change with DNS, move your certificate. So put that certificate for that site, whether it's www.example.com or star.example.com. You move your wildcard cert out there. You'll test it. You'll attack it. You'll validate that it's kind of working. And maybe you do that by IP or by name with something like basic... You test it by attacking it, Scott? You mean I can't just test it by saying, I can still get to the site, it must be okay. (laughs) There's some standard URLs you can mosh that, you know, would do some typical, very, you know, low-level basic things that a WAF should break. And so you could just put that at the end of your path section of your URL and test it and see that you get a 403 or what have you coming back. And so you're like, okay, I think it's working. You could... Go ahead and put it into enforcement mode at that point and do full logging and then try it your app again. You could have the app team or the security team hammer at it. But then you may quickly find out that it's triggering certain rules and it's just the nature of how the web app works is that it's it's breaking because the WAF is trying to block certain things. But you're like, well, that's actually part of the path and that's how our application works. It's triggering a rule that says, no, that's really not a bad way to build a web app. Well, Scott, back um, so up a second gonna, there, because you said something important I think we need to clarify. You mentioned putting okay. it into enforcement mode. Uh-huh. So is there, therefore, a, a learning mode where I'm building rules and then I can see what the WAF would have done if it was in enforcement mode? Yeah. So some of them have like a detect mode where you can just watch and log and it just observes. And then it'll tell you, oh, I'm in normal application behavior, I'm triggering these five rules, either go fix your website or or do some more static scanning or correct these problems or we have certain or it prevents us from putting it into enforcement mode because of the way the web app is built in such a way that we can't put it in full enforcement mode so sometimes in my experience that happens about 50% of the time like the way the app is built prevents these apps from actually working properly because it's so, dropping traffic that it actually needs to allow through yeah because they've used certain characters or certain parts of the path are ways that attackers also attack the website um, and so you've used that as part of the way the application is written and so you end up in this in this situation where you might have to leave it in detect only mode so um, that's a real struggle or you can put it into enforcement mode and the web application is is written properly to handle that. Or you do half and half. Put those few rules that get triggered into detect only, so at least you're logging that they're happening, and then put the rest of the rules into enforcement mode. So it may be a hybrid model then at that point. But yeah, you may get stuck at that point, and that's the crux of WAF deployments. And they either go well or fail. And <laughs> Going back to that... Uh, point I was making very early in the show where mm-hmm. my memory was kind of, you had to write a lot of custom rules. Is that an mm-hmm. option here where I could be writing my own custom regex expression that would uh, be different than the default so I could let the default mm-hmm. go, leave that turned off, and then have my custom replacement rule uh, work instead to deal with however this particular website was coded? Yeah, you could do different kinds of 
bounds checking, parameterization, serialization. Yeah, you can do different things. Uh, and you can definitely, you know, take signatures that are coming from the vendor, some that are built in, some that are coming dynamically, and some you've custom written, just like an IPS traditionally, you know, you may have custom rules. It, it sounds that, horrifying, though, to do custom mm-hmm. rules, just from a technical debt mm-hmm. perspective. I That's what I was going to say. That sounds yep. like some sort of superhuman mm-hmm. person who's got so many hours in a day to just futz around with this stuff. I mean, are we still in an era where there's somebody dedicated to just whaffing all day? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Some big sites, it may be a full-time job. <laughs> that would be unsatisfying. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots to do. I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, no, there's there's threat intelligence reports to read and and WAF rules to look at and logs to look at. Yeah, yeah like mm. you know, in fact, you'd probably spend eighty percent of your time fiddling around with a logging platform, looking for, <laughs> you know, attacks that the WAF can't tell you about. Really, yeah. why would you have a WAF in the first place? It was the exactly. question that always comes to my mind. But I didn't say that out loud, did I? You you did not. <laughs> no. Oh wait, you did. No. You did actually. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. So, so the- I think the key one of the one of the things we haven't talked about in WAFs is the logging feature. The fact mm. that it's a centralized control point, and you can shunt all the logs. And even if you've got a scaled out horizontal WAF type infrastructure, we talked about you know auto scaling. You still send all the logs into something into some sort of logging tool, and then you start analyzing that. You need a an analysis platform, and there's a lot of tools out there that are starting to use machine learning and mm-hmm. pseudo AI type stuff looking for patterns in there to say, is there something the WAF didn't get? Because your threat intelligence feeds aren't perfect. In fact, they're usually far from it. Mm-hmm. And you would I imagine that even if you were a full-time WAF head, you'd still spend the bulk of your time trawling through logs, um, you know, panning for gold in there to try and see if something got passed. Because really, once a WAF is set up, there's nothing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Because very few of the threat intel feeds have... IPv6 addresses yep. in them. They can have IPv6 addresses, but they may not be populated as as much or as well. And uh, you're really relying on that to protect you, but you've got a weakness in IPv6 and a strength in IPv4, and the attackers will absolutely know the difference between the mm. two. Greg, I was just chortling that a minute ago you said pseudo AI, which would be artificial artificial intelligence. I'm pretty sure. So, yeah. <laughs> I was I was more I was more referring to the idea of pretend artificial I, intelligence. I you, I just, sorry, I was there. I had to say it. So Scott, uh, the 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 summary here of the life cycle. The summary is I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna install this thing. It's gonna be sitting there on my network. When I've got my basic rule set configured, I can point DNS to this. Now my inbound web requests are coming to the WAF. I mm-hmm. see how things are going. If things, and now I'm in test mode here, my, my learning mode, if you will, things look okay, seems to be going well. I can then move this to enforcement mode where rather than yep. just logging things I would have dropped, I am in fact actually dropping traffic and and now we're in production and if it starts to go sideways i could change dns uh, assume i've got a low ttl and i can reasonably quickly uh, point my inbound web request to something else that doesn't have the waf in the middle does that all sound yeah. about right yeah you could throw the switch put it into enforcement mode back off the switch to detect only mode yeah yep. got a few bail <laughs> bail completely and and redo your ttl or your dns entry and put it back the way it was right. you know but you're obviously doing this in the dev environment not in prod you know so you're going to 
you're going to be doing. Well, you say obviously, but it's so much more fun <laughs> to, uh, to just <laughs> test in prod. Really try it out in prod. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. Yeah. Now, now, now let's move on. We've uh, we've got the life cycle idea. Um, now we're mm-hmm. living with this WAF day to day. We're mm-hmm. operating WAFs. It's part of our normal uh, traffic flow. What is the split between developers, the people that are writing the web application itself, and then operators when it comes to dealing with WAFs? Yeah, they can be separate, uh, like they have been in the past, but they can be integrated too. And and the scripting of the deployment of the WAF goes hand in hand with the scripting and deployment of the of the web tier. So you could be, you know, building out auto scale groups of your proxies and WAFs, you know, using you know Apache or whatever WAF technology you want, using Ansible scripts to deploy the WAF at the same time that the Web tier is getting deployed. So you can still use infrastructure as code methods to deploy the WAF, the virtual networks, the stateful filters, the instances, the databases, everything all at once. So it could be integrated into your you know, continuous deployment, continuous delivery process, programs, scripts, um, and rolled out at the same time. And because the WAF is so tied to the web app, the web app team, mm. the developers can do this on their own and maybe need the operators to do less of this. So they may take on more of the responsibility. So I think this is where oh. NetOps comes in, where mm-hmm. they may well script the deployment of the WAFs as part of the deployment of their platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they go for an auto deployment, DevOps would want to auto script that. But I increasingly I'm of the view that uh, it's really not up to us anymore to do the deployment of it, but our job is to make sure that when it's deployed, it's in the operational model. Mm-hmm. That is the right versions deployed. It's attached to the web, to the threat intelligence feeds. Mm-hmm. Rules are fit for purpose, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you've still got to take responsibility for the post-deployment part. Yeah, absolutely. And many WAFs have integrated APIs, REST or JSON, where they can their configuration can be changed based on something on the back end. So yeah. maybe doing some other analysis, and now I want to go and inject a change because I'm seeing some fraudulent behavior on the back end, the web tier or the app tier. Now mm-hmm. I want to go and change the WAF, and I use an API to make that happen rather than have a WAF administrator go in and make the change to the policy <laughs> well, manually, you know? Yeah, I think that's true because you want the developers to own the initial security step and somebody else needs to change to operate. I don't think you can rely on developers to monitor operational security, but you might, I think developers should own deployment security and that's where we're at at the moment. If mm-hmm. they're deploying an app, they should deploy the WAF Mm-hmm. the rule set at time because they're going to create a container for that. Right? Well, it, Greg, it really feels like you would want that to be part of the CICD testing. You you want to know yes. that the, mm-hmm. the latest iteration of your web application firewall or your web application is not broken by the, by the WAF. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's part of their testing. So when they deploy, the WAF is part yeah. of their deployment and they yeah. would, mm-hmm. part of the DevOps would be to transfer the licenses from the current operational platforms to the new. So you deploy a whole line of service from the WAF through to the database back end. Yeah. As opposed and, to releasing the latest iteration of the web app to uh, production, web, the yes. WAF isn't part of the, the chain of testing. And now in production, no. you're like, ah, the WAF's breaking things. This is terrible. Yeah. You, you really <laughs> wouldn't right, want yeah. that to be. But, but, you know, when you business. go from version two to version three of the app, the WAF, of your app or their deployment cycle, they are deploying their own WAFs as part of that. But once the WAFs are in place, somebody has to then take over operational security and operational networking capabilities. 
there's a whole bunch of work there. So now the networking person certainly needs to know programming or enough programming, enough Ansible or enough Terraform or whatever your preferred, you know, um, left-handed screwdriver looks like to be able to run a set of scripts in the post-deployment and go, is it connected to threat intelligence? Is it getting a feed? Is it up to date? Is it the latest version of code? Because you don't want to be clicky-clicking your way through all of this. You want to be um, doing that in an automated fashion and then hitting the logs to say, am I getting logs? Oh, they deployed six WAFs. Do I have six WAFs sending logs, et cetera, et cetera? But Scott, I think there is something here worth raising, which is when a web application firewall is dropping traffic, the developer should have the most insight to understand if it's, say, it's a false positive, you really mm-hmm. wanted that traffic to come through. Uh, the developer should have the most insight into what that problem is and then how to resolve that issue, as opposed to the operator taking the first crack at it. Is that fair? Yeah, the operator may just look at the first part of the uh, URL, which is the fully qualified domain name. The developer knows what's happening in the path portion of the you know, URI, URL. Hmm. All right, Scott, let's say I'm either a nasty black hat hacker or, or maybe even just a, t- a pen tester, and I am trying to get around a WAF. Is there a technique that I could use? Yeah, there's different kinds of, because uh, your aim is to bypass the WAF mm. or evade the methods that are being used. So you try to obfuscate the URI, the malicious code you're trying to inject, or the JavaScript that you're trying to pass through to the to the backend web server directly. And so you do different kinds of, you know, like, like my favorite, you know, uh, you know, numerical counting system, base 16, you encode it in hex, uh, you do certain path, you encode the string in a certain way, you do mixed case, you add white space, you do escape characters, you, you can, yeah. I mean, do that, that's, that stuff works, code. Scott, because uh, we're, because of signature-based detection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're just trying to bypass the signature. Something to change to say these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these aren't the the packets you're looking for. And I'm going to try and change where those things may be located. I may push it back. I may add some padding, uh, some null strings that then get uh, that bypass or change how the signature is matched. Um, yeah, you're going to try all kinds of things. And there's tools to help you do this. WAF Ninja, Gauntlet, OWASP, Z Attack Proxy. So there's different methods. The same, yeah, like you said, the same methods that an attacker could use, a security assessor could use to validate that the WAF is operational. And you're going to want to do this as part of that deployment phase we were talking about earlier, as part of the test it and hack it. You'll use these same techniques to try to validate that the WAF is is protecting you from these different kinds of odd encodings, which it should, because all the techniques that you're talking about are reasonably well known. You're not you're not breaking any mm-hmm. security secrets here uh, to the audience. Mm-hmm. These are known things, and so the WAF should. Hey, I've got a funky encoded URI coming at me. Let me shift this around. Hmm. Yep, I see what they're trying to do. No, bad. It log it, drop it. Yeah, a lot of this is in the input direction, but the WAF is also looking at the output from the backend website too. So it's not just looking at what's going in, it's what's going out. And so the WAF is able to look at that and go, ooh, something happened. And now the outbound per, uh, is not correct. 
you know, the outbound has problems now. Ooh, I better shut that down too. So there, it can be in both directions watching. Hmm. So it isn't that as a WAF administrator, I need to do anything special to deal with these techniques that might be being used against my WAF, but I should at least be smart about what they are and be able to perform the testing required to validate that the WAF is indeed protecting me against this sort of obfuscation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, it could be, you know, parameterization that needs to take place. It's looking at a bunch of different kinds of things. It's looking at output encoding, XML encoding, JavaScript. So if you can change any of that or move it around, yeah, hmm. you can try and bypass it. Now, Scott, there's going to be some engineers that are listening to this show, and they have a WAF story. Uh, the day the WAF was just got it got too hard, and they had to shut the thing off or just kind of leave it in mm-hmm. learning mode, whatever. And there's a million things that could have caused this. The the WAF policy just got too restrictive, or it kind of fell behind the state of the app it was protecting. How can we avoid WAFs becoming too hard so that they can stay in production uh, and and performing their uh, protection that they're supposed to be performing for us. Yeah, Greg mentioned, you know, the technical debt on these can be high. <laughs> Large administrative burden and and Ethan, you know, you know, trying to do these types of rules and policies manually can just be incredibly time consuming. So you really want to rely on a vendor to give you that automated rule set and trust that there's other people, you know, there would be other people smarter than me that would tell me what I need to block and I just trust that it's that it's working and uh so keeping them updated, keeping them patched, you know, having an automated feed of information coming in or or is it using a WAF service that can just take this off my hands, it helps me move from CapEx to OpEx. And now I'm just paying for a service and now I've shifted the responsibility or the or the risk to them to help protect me. Uh, and I've gotten one last thing off my plate of things to do and uh, but then I wouldn't want to have a lot of vendor lock-in if I was buying a service because let's say the attackers have the advantage of changing their methodologies quickly, much more quickly than you could change your defensive mechanisms. And so you may switch a vendor if one vendor isn't keeping up with the latest attack styles or methods or the way they've written their WAF service locks you in and, and can only protect you from certain kinds of things. But now a new zero day comes out, completely change the landscape. You want to switch vendors really quick. You may need to do that. But if you're locked into a long-term contract, that would prevent you from doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything's a trade-off, right? So mm-hmm. right, you, if you outsource, then you, you have the benefit of having outsourced. I don't have to think about this. Yay, mm-hmm. I just give them money every month. But then, right, you do lose some of that, that flexibility. We're just curious, mm-hmm. what do you see most folks uh, doing in your experience, Scott? Do they keep the, their WAFs in-house and under their control? Or is outsourcing becoming more popular? I think... It's it's split, but I think outsourcing is becoming more popular because of the ability to do those AI, ML, the scalability that I talked about, um, integrating it with the CDN that appeals to many people and offloading that technical debt, I think is, is quite appealing. Those people who keep it inside treat the WAFs, like in the DevOps model, they treat them like cattle. And so we kill them and rebuild them and we're constantly churning and updating them and we're constantly building new ones. So like they say, uh, there can be no advanced persistence 
without persistence. So if something's very ephemeral in the cloud and it's coming and going, then no one's the attacker isn't able to get on the WAF itself, isn't able to attack the WAF because uh, that's the exposed attack surface. And so by killing them and changing them and updating them and uh, rapidly, you could avoid some attacks that way. So I think the people who keep it under their control treat them like, like cattle, just like they, they treat mm -hmm. their web tier. Uh, going yeah. back to one of the advantages you you gave of a outsourcing, you know, a cloud-based service was mm -hmm. AI and ML, and I threw up in my mouth mm -hmm. a little. Do you actually believe that <laughs> the AI and ML thing is is happening in security? Is that a real and actual strategic benefit I should care about? Yeah, you trust you trust but verify, or it could just be a marketing term. Um, you don't know, but certainly a CDN would have a broader perspective of sites. Uh, all seeing the same type of behavior and they would have more volume to do that analysis where you would only be looking at your one site or your set of sites that you maintain and trying to call out uh, themes or commonality or correlation and you're looking at a smaller subset. So they just buy the massive volume of data they see, they're able to see some of those trends that you wouldn't observe. Mm. Okay. So there's so whether it's just an algorithm or it's something that's advanced formula taking place behind the scenes, you don't really know. We hear so much about it. I mean, we know across networking and across IT broadly, AI, AI and ML keep coming up. Uh, machine learning seems to be more real than AI, but uh, both mm -hmm. terms are there. There does seem to be very early signs of useful functionality coming out of them. But because marketing people overuse the terms, they really abuse the terms badly in some cases. It just, I'm immediately skeptical when I hear claims and, and always try to second guess. Yeah, there, there are some companies who are really doing some good stuff with artificial intelligence, but I don't think too many people in the networking space have artificial intelligence because you just can't find people who know, like Google and Facebook are paying $3 million salary per artificial intelligence expert. Mm. So wow. there's, there's not too many people in the networking industry paying $3 million for a headcount to do AI. That's a yearly salary, by the way, for the for the people who have degrees. Because I mean, most of I'll, them have I'll go like back to school. How long can it? Yeah. How hard can it be? <laughs> it's yeah, twelve I gotta, years. I, I gotta think. go, guys. I gotta go update my resume. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like ten to twelve years. These people do like two or three math degrees, and then yeah. they're like a doctor doing an internship in artificial intensive maths, which is yeah. yeah. I did you, I did some research into it and just realized just how difficult it is, and from that you can extrapolate. There's very very few people in the market doing true AI today, which is why I always say pseudo AI. We're not mm -hmm. going to see it in networking. You can see this. Um, you can see the networking vendors out there trying to buy companies doing AI just so they can get the, the people who've got AI skills. Mm -hmm. um, so there is something like that going on. But I think most of them are doing machine learning and statistical reg like regression and statistical analysis yeah. mm -hmm. and calling it that machine learning. And if they're doing machine learning, they're calling it AI, and, which is a bit of sophistry and a bit of you know flat-out lying. But that's the, way, that's the way of it. So uh, what you are looking for, though, is people who are taking the data, doing some de some serious analysis, not just sort of some heuristics and pattern matching and looking for known threats. And, you know, if I see these patterns, you want something that's discovering the unknown threats. And if they've got that, 
of whether they build it from models out of threat intelligence feeds or by collect, collecting massive amounts of data. Look at what uh, Kentech, who's a regular sponsor on Packet Tools, they suck all that flow data up and then analyze it, and they can tell you what a DDoS looks like it just from the flow data mm-hmm. because they've got enough data to do the analysis and start to do the machine learning to say, we know that this pattern is always followed by a DDoS event. Therefore, that pattern is a DDoS. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're looking for. And this is what I'm looking for WAFs to do. Um, uh, Extra Hop, who's also a regular sponsor of Packet Pushes, Disclosure, mm-hmm. um, talks about their packet analysis tools. And I spoke to, the, to Jesse, their chief scientist person, and he was explaining to me how he's tooling forward for AI. He said, yeah, we don't have it yet, but he can see a vision. He was able to explain yeah. to me a vision of how they're going to be able to do, you know, look at the packet flows, look at things like gaps between packets and the types of sequences of packets and chains of packet data and be able to say, if I can recognize that uh, pattern, then from the data that I've learned somewhere else, I can take that model and put it down on the device. So, yeah, today none of that's in WAFs. WAFs are still, in my view, sort of back to five years ago doing legacy sorts of stuff. And if yeah. I see this URL, it's a naughty boy. If I see <laughs> yeah. you know, a cross-site a CSRF, then that's a naughty boy. Put them in the in the play box. Yeah. You know, that type of stuff. I don't think we've really seen uh, too much going on here. Perhaps the most significant transition in WAF is the fact that people are now actually able to use them. In the old days, mm-hmm. we used to put them in and then turn them off because they never worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like what I described. Mm-hmm. They yeah. put them in detect mode or they wouldn't work. And mm. why are we paying for something that's just logging? Yeah. Yep. Well, Scott, I got one last question for you. Uh, a WAF is not an end all and a be all. Uh, we have already talked about security uh, or defense in depth. Uh, WAFs are just one part of that strategy. Well, what are the other security methods that would complement, augment, replace WAFs maybe? Uh, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I mentioned this concept of compensating controls. So definitely, you know, you keep your web server software patched, you stig your instances, you know, you're you're securing those systems, you're you're encrypting your data in transit and at rest in case that data gets exfiltrated. You're restricting the HTTP methods to just get head and post and you're blocking, you know, put, delete, connect, patch, trace, those things. We also maybe doing some more advanced authentication of the end user to say, who are they? Are they not a robot? <laughs> You're doing reCAPTCHA, you know. You're doing MFA, 2FA, U2F, you know, because passwords are terrible. <laughs> so you're trying to get users to log yeah. out of the website when they're done and, session ex- and expire the session. You're trying to look at that. You're trying to parameterize uh, in your web app the parameters that are coming in and doing that checking uh, to prevent those types of malicious URIs in the first place. Uh, you're doing output encoding to make sure that what you're outputting doesn't include, you know, some bad JavaScript or something like that. Um, and you're and you're trying to use HTTPS and HTTP strict transport security. You're trying to use, you know, stronger TLS, you know, 1.3, stronger ciphers, disabling weak ciphers, methods, and algorithms. <laughs> you are, you're trying to, and you're except for all the to. clients out there that don't want you yeah. to. Yeah, I understand. Exactly. But you're, but you're aiming for that, that software-defined perimeter, zero trust, you know, you, you, uh, you gave a long method there. and you're kind of working towards that, and then you're logging a ton. So that is also another way to see uh, the effectiveness of all of this, to prevent tampering or look at that fraudulent behavior. So you're doing a combination of things all in addition to that WAF. Right. 
to right. make it more effective. You're describing things that if you didn't have a WAF, you should be doing these things anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, a lot, some of that sounded like Apache mod security to me. Some of that sounded like just a basic Apache configuration. Um, you know, and then, and then other uh, protections even beyond that to uh, prevent a lot of the things that are exploitable from being exploitable in your case, really reducing that attack service and making mm-hmm. certain exploits much harder to execute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you did static application security testing, you looked at your code and you see, oh, I have a buffer overflow. Uh, I'm going to mitigate it in the code. Well, guess what? You just fixed it for V4 and V6. Hmm. And now you're, you've offloaded a function from the WAF because now that's not part of your application or the way it works. Or you've made the web tier do that runtime application self-protection. So you're putting some more control into the, into the web tier itself to prevent and complement what you may be doing on the WAF. So a combination. Mm. It's complicated. WAFs are really difficult because they always end up, every time you deploy them, they end up unique to the deployment that you're in. It's very difficult to be generalized about them. Mm-hmm. Do you find that every time you deploy them, they come out radically, like a router is a router, a switch is a switch. It, they don't get varied, but WAFs always end up highly customized for each client, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they should be because of the nature of the applications. Oh. Mm. Yeah, there's a broader spectrum of what WAFs may look like when they go into prod. Yeah, and I think it's also important that WAFs need constant tending, constant love, constant mm-hmm. adaptation, because mm-hmm. the apps keep changing over time and the, the security posture changes. It's not A WAF is not something like a camper switch, which you plug in, turn the cable, plug the cables in, power it up, set some basic, configure a couple of VLANs and come back in 10 years and see if it's clean the dust off sort of thing. They yeah. really need to be tuned regularly and often. Yeah, the next time you look at it is when it's end of life and it's time to upgrade it to the next version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yep. this is one of the great things about VMs is they are actually a lot easier to maintain. Mm-hmm. Back in the days of hardware and running WAF on top of a load balancer on top of some custom hardware, just upgrading them was enormously painful. Putting them into a VM is so much easier and simpler because you can easily just put another VM next to it and then turn the old one off, turn the new one on. If it doesn't work, just flip them back. So much easier in a, in a virt- functions type of software function type mm-hmm. environment. Yeah. Do that AB blue green mm-hmm. uh, deployment, mm-hmm. you know, where you're putting them in, taking them out, setting them up, tearing them down, rebuilding them. Mm-hmm. I have these memories of, of being panicked and sweaty after a change control to upgrade either ADC, con- uh, ADC code, mm-hmm. WAF code on the ADC or both and going, please just work. Just everybody just work, please. <laughs> And now that all these functions are separated as a normal way yeah. of doing things, it's so much yeah. better. Such yeah, a better I just want to give be. up. Oh. You want to give up just your Saturday, not your Saturday and that's your Sunday. Right. That's right, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Scott, this has been a this has been a great conversation. Um, we're uh, how can people follow you, Scott? Are you on the internet? Do you blog? Uh, tell us all the things. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm at Scott Hogue. Uh, you can listen to me on the IPv6 Buzz podcast on packetpushers.net. So if, if you care to hear us blather on about IPv6, uh, hexabuild.io. Uh, but then I also write for Network World uh, and the Infoblocks IPv6 Center of Excellence. Excellent. Well, again, Scott, thanks for your time. Uh, I sent you an email and said, hey, would you would you come talk to us about WAFs? And you said, yes, I would. So we really appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, this has, again, been a great conversation. And uh, thanks to you and the audience for listening today. We do genuinely hope that you learned something. And if you did, 
you can learn even more. Again, as Scott just mentioned, packetpushers.net. Since 2010, we have been publishing podcasts by and for IT professionals, not just podcasts, written articles, newsletters, videos too. And the goal is to keep you up to date on the vendor products you buy and the latest in networking, cloud, automation, and more. Uh, The big idea here, professional career development. You can find all of that on our subscribe page. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.